But let's begin with prayer. I need some prayer. My voice is just continues to be um, stressed, and I, I don't know why. So pray for me, please, too. Dear Lord, thank you for another Sunday to gather together, to search the Scriptures, to turn our hearts to you, to ask you for grace and mercy, to ask you to work powerfully in our lives. Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom as we look into your word, that we might learn what you want us to learn, that your word might penetrate into our hearts to change us, correct us, encourage us, comfort us, everything that we need. And Lord, we pray for those that listen around the world on the Internet, that you would also bring much blessing into their lives as they hear the word too. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 11:13. We did this verse, but... I had some cross-references we had not yet looked up. It says, For such men are pseudo-apostles, literally, false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles. For no wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And then in verse 15, Therefore it's not surprising if his servants disguise themselves. So that word disguise, disguising, that we talked about last week, meta Schematizo, schema being the word for form, outward form. So they change outward forms. They're like metamorphosis. Only instead of the morph, which is another word that's similar to schema, it's using the one this word. So metaschema instead of metamorph. And the indication is there's this changing of form, so that they appear to be something different than they really are. Okay, they appear to be one thing, but in reality, inwardly, there's something else. And they're deceitful, as I said last week, and that word means to put out bait in order to catch victims. Put out bait to catch victims. Crafty, crooked, and so on. Now, well, I see we don't have any front row people, so... Beth, Beth, would you like to read a verse? You better, you better get to church early or you'll, or you'll have to sit in the front row. <laughs> okay, that would be bad. Uh, Beth, Acts 15 and verse 1, Donna, Acts 20 and verse 30, Reynold, Galatians 2, 4, and Bert, Galatians 4, 16 to 18. Galatians 4, 16 to 18. Okay, Acts 15 and verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, so there were false people that were requiring obedience to the law of Moses as a prerequisite for salvation. That was a huge issue in the early church, probably the biggest one. If you look at all of the issues that arise in the New Testament, reading Acts and the epistles, I'd say the biggest issue that they had to deal with was this one of whether or not the law of Moses was binding on all Christians. And the decision was made early on that it was not. But this caused a huge uproar, and it was hard for the Jewish people to accept that what they held 
dear to themselves was no longer binding. They, they had a hard time with that. Acts 20 and verse 30. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Okay, from among your own selves. So in this case, Paul predicted to the Ephesian elders that the problem would come from within their own ranks. Now, according to Gordon Fee's commentary on First and Second Timothy, he's firmly convinced that the false teachers that Timothy had to address in Ephesus when at his time, this address of First and Second Timothy, were actually elders who had gone astray. In other words, Paul's prophecy was fulfilled. And that's really a terrible situation when that happens. Now, Galatians 2 and verse 4. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Okay, false brothers came to spy out our liberty. And, again, these were Judaizers. And, Bert, you had Galatians 4:16 to 18. Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendable, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. Okay, another one about false teachers. Okay, um, let's go to verse 14. We finished up 13. 14, 2 Corinthians 11, 14. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. As we pointed out, this is the same word as in verse 13, metaschematizo. I think I should say that one on the radio sometime, don't you think? <laughs> Everybody needs to know that word. <laughs> and uh, changing outward form in order to appear to be something that you're not. That's what that is. Okay? You're disguising. So, so Satan is the one who, here it says, disguises himself as an angel of light. According to the scholars that I read, and in, in they, they put note a bunch of these sources, in the intertestamental Jewish literature, which would be the pseudepigrapha, the apocrypha, things like that, there are stories about Satan appearing like a shining angel. Okay, so this idea of Satan disguising himself as an angel of light may be a reference to some things happen that happened in intertestamental time as far as their own literature. But we certainly know that Satan is a deceiver, and Satan is a liar and a schemer, and that he would come in a form... Excuse me. Boy, how's my voice weak? It's going to be a tough day. Pray for me that I'll have a voice. Anyhow, he'll have a form that appears good on the outside. Okay. Now, wouldn't that make sense? If you're going to deceive somebody, would you show up looking as nasty as you could be? Would you show up looking like the devil? Well, no. You're going to, if you want to deceive somebody, you're going to show up looking like something good, something desirable, something beneficial, 
something that people would sign up for or be interested in. And if we go back to the very first interaction between Satan and humans in the garden with the serpent, did not the serpent offer Eve something desirable? Right? It's desirable to make one wise. Remember that phrase? She saw that it was desirable. And did he not say, you can be like God, knowing good and evil? Good and evil there may be um, a figure of speech like our A to Z, knowing everything, or having knowledge. At the very least, it means to have knowledge that God has not chosen to reveal. Secret knowledge God has not chosen to reveal. So we have the very beginning of the occult happening in the Garden of Eden. Occult means secret, okay, secret knowledge. Robert, why don't you look up Galatians 1.8, and I've got a couple of citations here. Go ahead when you find it. Galatians 1, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Okay. Now, if you, do you think an angel from heaven would be a nice guy? Well, obviously. All right. So if an angel from heaven preaches a, a bad gospel and you shouldn't listen to it, well, then if a nice guy does, how much more you won't listen to him either. All right. The gospel itself is the litmus test. Yes. And it's so much so that it is the means of discerning spirits. The gospel is the means of discerning spirits. When the gospel is proclaimed, that's such an important and precious thing as far as the New Testament is concerned. And Paul, in his ministry, emphasized this, but it's also emphasized in places like 1 John, that Paul could even rejoice when somebody's preaching a gospel that has other flaws. At least he's, he's, he can rejoice that the gospel's preached. Why is that so important? I wonder why it's so important. Because it's the means that God has chosen to use to save the lost. I've been, I've been li- trying to decide how. I'm preaching on the Ten Commandments again today because I don't know how to preach the prodigal son. I'm telling you, I don't know how. Pray for me. Because how do you preach a whole chapter in one sermon or do you divide it up and miss the drama of the story as it's told? I think what I'm going to do is tell you all to go learn the prodigal son up front, and then I might cut it into some pieces, because I, I, I don't know what to do. I have a whole book about the prodigal son by this Kenneth Bailey, and so I don't know how I'm going to do that. But I, So I thought, I wonder how MacArthur did it. I know he already preached through the prodigal son. He wrote a book on it, too, but he got his inspiration from Bailey, because he told me that. Okay, now, <laughs> so I went on his website. Well, I know how MacArthur does it. It took about eight sermons to go through Luke 15. And uh, I listened to the first one, and he never even got to verse 1. So I'm not going to take any criticism about how slow I go. <laughs> he didn't get to verse 1. He, he preached a whole sermon about God having joy. It was very interesting that the one thing the Bible says and I'll, I'll, I'll include this when I preach through this because it's in the text. The one thing the Bible says that we that will give God joy that we can do here on earth is when we preach the gospel and a sinner repents. All of heaven rejoices when that happens. 
And so his whole series is predicated on the idea of God's joy, was to find the lost. So, uh, amazing. So that was, that's why Paul rejoiced that the gospel's preached, even by some people that really meant him harm, because if it's preached, the lost will be found and heaven will rejoice. So that really, what a motivation for evangelism. Here, um, uh, this garland says this, the greatest weapon the devil has in his arsenal to test us is praise and flattery. Let me repeat that. I think that's a very amazing statement. The greatest weapon the devil has in his arsenal to test us is praise and flattery. Wow. Remember, um, I probably told this story many times. It's trouble while pastoring the same church for 30 years. Your stories are bound to get recycled. But, I, but the story is about a lady that pro- called me back in the 80s and started prophesying to me. And, and the phone rings, I pick it up, and what do you know? It's the Lord. <laughs> she, <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and the Lord, through this lady, says, Thus saith the Lord. Thou art a great man of God. Thou art greater than Billy Graham. Thou art the... I said, okay, did Jesus Christ come in the flesh? And the voice says, she believes that, second person. Okay, uh, this isn't the Lord. I hung up. I was quite sure that God was not going to call me to flatter me. I don't think I need flattery. I need a rebuke. <laughs> flattery is the devil's tool. All right. The serpent offers the promise of special knowledge that will allow Adam and Eve to become like God. The Corinthians, who want to become rich and reign as kings, 1 Corinthians 4.8, are particularly susceptible to a false gospel dispensed by jaunty, diamond-studded apostles that appeals to their innate human pride and the desire to be special. Swollen with pride themselves, these rivals gull the Corinthians by stroking their vanity. That's, that's an important insight. It's a, that, I'd say that's a very important insight. Because if you just listen to what false teachers do, they try to convince you that you're special that you need to have more self-esteem, that you need, that you, uh, that you are, you deserve to be wealthy, and so on. Whereas the true gospel always humbles us. How does the true gospel humble us? Because it causes us to realize how unworthy we are, what a high price the Lord paid that we might be part of the family of God, and that we really don't deserve anything, but he's given us grace. I, I was editing a radio show that, that we had, just last night I was editing a radio show that's, that we did on Hebrews. And, it, you know, uh, we were talking about that throne of grace. I thought the Lord was using us. That, that throne of grace thing was really amazing. It says that we go and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. All right? And that word time there, ukairos, is, kairos would be qualitative time, timely. 
and when you put the prefix on it, 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 may, it strengthens it, and, and it says timely help, good, blessed, timely help. And what it means is that we go to the throne of grace, first thing we receive is mercy. God doesn't execute his just judgment against us. The next thing we receive is grace, power to be different. And the next thing we receive is timely help, meaning just in time. <laughs> okay, we would like our help to be in the bank account, uh, but it simply means it comes just in time. And so we should go to the throne of grace. Yes, Patrick. So I was thinking about what you are saying. Is there a difference between the kind of flattery or um, false building up or... or um, appealing to pride versus trying to energize people to get them to be encouraged to okay. uh, do kingdom work and be strong and do the right thing and, and have some confidence in that endeavor? Okay. Very good question. Should we encourage one another? Yes. I think the, the thing that really helps us is Paul's discussion of boasting in First Second Corinthians. He doesn't exclude boasting. He excludes boasting in anything but the Lord. And so ultimately, if we want to encourage one another, we encourage one another about the fact that God's grace is at work in our midst and in you. And if God's grace is at work in you, then there's everything in the world to be encouraged about. Or we can encourage one another when we tell somebody that God used them. If somebody says to me, the sermon that you preached, you must have known it just about me because that's exactly what I needed to hear, and God used it. That's boasting in the Lord because I, I couldn't figure out. I don't know what everybody needs to hear. I can only tell you what the Bible says. So that's boasting in the Lord. But, but if we start comparing ourselves to you know who's better and who's great and who did, did this or that, that would be kind of a temptation. Does that make sense? That makes sense. What about um, trying to instill confidence and passion in someone about a work they're doing, say, for the church or in, the, in, in any area of life? Uh, what's the difference there? Instill confidence and passion? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. As long as we realize that the bottom line is God's gracious work, okay? I want, I want to encourage the saints. I guess encouraging somebody would have to be warranted. You know, you can't just say, you can't just, if, if I boast for you about something that you did very, very well, I'm boasting for you as opposed to, as opposed to you boasting, provided that it's, that it's in the Lord or it's yeah. relative to that. But I think if you look and make sure that it's warranted, now if somebody, if, if a wolf in sheep's clothing comes up to me and says, oh, you're a wonderful person, he doesn't know me, he doesn't know what I do, but it, it, you have to make sure that it's warranted. Okay. Thank you. All right, so I have one other one here. This is Barnett. Paul's argument is that if Satan himself, the very archetype of evil, is capable of habitually fashioning, that's another way to translate that word, fashioning himself into an angel of light, then there's no matter for surprise if these men are able to transform themselves into apostles of Christ, that is, Satan's ministers 
are able to transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. So they, they want to be considered sent by Christ, apostles of Christ, ministers of righteousness, which we'll see in the next verse. But they're actually being sent not by Christ, but by Satan. What a great way to deceive the church for Satan is to send ministers who will look like they're ministers of Christ, but they're doing his bidding. And that's why, I honestly, beloved, that's why this gospel issue is so important and the confession of Christ is so important. Because if you put all the verses together that talk about this, one thing Satan will never energize is the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Because if he did that, his kingdom would certainly be divided. He'd be, he, he would be willingly giving up his plunder, that is, his captives. And so that's why, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, it says no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not a... What was that thing in the Old Testament? Shibboleth? Remember they had a test because there was one tribe that couldn't make a certain sound? And if they could say shibboleth, was that it? Okay. Then, then they're okay because if they were for any other tribe, there's no way they could say that. That's not what that is. In other words, a false teacher could utter the phrase, Jesus is Lord. A Jehovah Witness could utter the phrase, Jesus is Lord. A Mormon could utter the phrase, Jesus is Lord. But Paul, it doesn't mean utter the phrase. He means confess it fully and truly. And so it's sort of a shorthand there for the gospel, just like the preaching of the cross is shorthand for the gospel. Okay? When the Holy Spirit's at work, the gospel will be confessed. That's what will happen. That is the number one test. And you can be sure Satan won't cause that. All right? And I would furthermore say that anything that motivates us to preach the gospel the less or emphasize the gospel the less or to hide the gospel or to not confess the gospel, I would say we should be very suspicious that whatever it is that's causing that came from Satan. Even if it comes in the guise of sociology, demographic studies, church growth, and what have you, it may sound like it's very wise and well-meaning, but if the bottom line is the gospel's not preached, where did it come from? It didn't come from God, I'll tell you that. Verse 15. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants, who's Satan's, also disguise. Here's the third use of that same word. It has schema at the heart of the word, metaschematizo, three times here. Or transform or masquerade as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So here we have super apostles painting themselves as greater than Paul, claiming to have had better visions, better experiences, better rhetoric, better looks better everything, and they are telling, they are 
portraying themselves as servants of righteousness. Lenski says this is an objective genitive, meaning ministers who serve righteousness. So, this ministry of righteousness it was used earlier. Let's, do you want to give Sam the mic? Sam, could you look up 2 Corinthians 3.9, and we can see what a ministry of righteousness actually is. And then we'll talk about one that appears to be that, but it is not. Ministry of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 3.9. 3.9. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Okay. So there the contrast is between the Old Covenant which he calls the ministry of condemnation, the law showing us our sin, and the new covenant, which Paul calls the ministry of righteousness. Right? Now, let's do a little investigating and see what's going on. Okay? The, the interesting thing, the, the difficult and kind of fun thing about Second Corinthians, you always have to try to get behind the scene because we don't know always who's being spoken of and what really is going on. But, if we turn ahead to 2 Corinthians 11.22, we get a little clue about the identity of the super-apostles. 2 Corinthians 11.22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. He says that because he doesn't like to boast. No. Therefore, it's pretty clear that these... Remember we said that we thought that these were probably people that came from Jerusalem. There were Christians zealous for the law. And that claimed to be set by Christ. Claimed to be apostles. So if their status was proven in the eyes of the Corinthians, because they were Hebrews, Israelites, descendants of Abraham. And they are actually Satan's servants, disguising themselves as servants of righteousness, then I would say the most likely scenario is that they were coming, offering righteousness through the law in some manner. All right? And so, according to Paul's usage of the ministry of righteousness in Second. Corinthians 3 and verse 9, rather than offering righteousness, they are offering condemnation disguised as righteousness. Okay, just put it all together, see what you think. That's kind of how we have to do this. Yes, uh, Arliss. So I've always wondered, as I'm studying God's Word, do you think these Judaism people were really truly born again Christian Jewish people. Um, yeah, there's some there's some question about that here, obviously, because they're called servants of Satan. Yeah, they I think they were apostate. And one of the theories that I kind of have in my mind now, as we're going through Hebrews again, is that those thousands of Jews that James talked about in Acts that were zealous for the law may have been the very target that the book of Hebrews is trying to stop from happening, that they're going to go back to the law 
which is called apostasy. All right? And uh, it was, a, I think it's probably the most serious threat that happened in the new time of the apostles. If you read the book of Acts, if you read Galatians, if you read everything that was going on, I think it was the most serious threat to the church that they were facing was a threat to go back to the old covenant. Yes? I wonder if it's connected somehow. When a Gentile became a Christian at that time, what word did they give them as the word of God other than possibly the Torah? Uh, it's, it's probably conjecture as to what... Well, what, what were they taught? Well, yeah. according to Acts, it was the apostles' teaching. I mean, they quoted Old Testament. You know, uh, Paul preached from the Septuagint, and the author of Hebrews heavily quotes the Septuagint. But the binding teaching of the gospel was the teaching of Christ and his apostles. Okay? So the apostles were still on the scene of history, but they were teaching. Well, to start with, it was verbal, and then eventually these epistles were written and were copied and were circulated. But, yeah, they had the apostles' teaching. That was the gospel. And the zealous for the law, really the conflict became this. Paul goes to Asia Minor and preaches in Ephesus and elsewhere, and churches are founded. And in Acts 15, they determine that the Gentiles who were coming to Christ were not bound to follow the law of Moses. They did not have to keep Sabbath, dietary laws, food laws, the three most visible signs, circumcision. I mean, food laws and dietary here, that's synonymous, sorry. Uh, those three things, they didn't have to follow that. All right? But here's how I'm reading this now. I was trying to piece together the history of the first century church. What happened then was the, there was Jews and Gentiles in the same churches. Okay? You can read about this in Galatians. You can read about this a lot of places. There were Jews saved, because Paul always went first to the synagogue and preached there, and then he went to the Gentiles, and who all was saved, Jew and Gentile, are all in the same church. Now, one of the really key things uh, in Christianity, especially in the first century, was table fellowship. Was it not? And we see that as we're going through Luke. And Luke 15 starts with this. The Pharisees and Sadducees, or the, the Jewish leaders, I can't remember which group, whoever they were, made an accusation against Jesus that he was eating with sinners. And who you ate with meant everything. And so when Peter refused to eat with Gentiles, when these Christians zealous for the law had come from Jerusalem because he didn't want to be seen eating with Gentiles. Paul rebuked him to his face in Galatians. Why? Because it's a threat to the church. If you can't have fellowship, you can't have communion. You can't even have the Lord's Supper. All right? And so, obviously, obviously, these uh, mixed churches, if they had table fellowship, it was because the law wasn't being kept, even by the Jewish Christians. Because if the Jewish Christians demanded that they could only have fellowship with people that were circumcised and kept the food laws and so on, you couldn't have unity in the church. So therefore, it's true, most likely, that the Jews in these mixed churches 
were having table fellowship with saved Gentiles and weren't as strict about keeping the law of Moses as what their custom would have been. Now, the, the accusation, when Paul got to Jerusalem, the accusation was some Jews from Asia came and accused him of telling Christian Jews they didn't have to keep the law of Moses. Well, as a matter of fact, Christian Jews don't have to keep the law of Moses, right? And so that's what, that was the explosion in Jerusalem that led to Paul's arrest and, and, and all of the problems that happened. So if this reconstruction is correct, then these super-apostles had actually come from Jerusalem, claimed to have higher status than Paul, and were troubling the church and claiming some to be servants of righteousness. In other words, claiming to provide a means of obtaining righteousness that was something other than the gospel itself. There is how Satan disguises himself. Bob, could you quickly clarify the difference between um, what you're saying is the law of Moses and the moral law of God? Well, the law of Moses would be stipulations that come uh, with the Old Covenant. Okay? Right now I'm teaching through the Ten Commandments. I got an email from somebody accusing me of falsely binding by teaching the Ten Commandments and said I should not be teaching the Ten Commandments. They're not for the church. They're not for us. I got such an email. And I said... Well, you'll be happy to know that just last Sunday I preached that Christians don't have to keep Sabbath. <laughs> and, and I said, all the other of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the New Testament. Right? I mean, are we allowed to covet under the New Testament? Are we allowed to commit idolatry? Are we allowed to commit adultery? No. Are we <laughs> Are we allowed to rebel against parents? No. So you're right, Patrick. That's obviously that's moral law of God that transcends just covenantal issues. But there are covenantal things that are stipulated in Leviticus and in Exodus and so on, and some in Numbers and Deuteronomy, but mostly Leviticus and Exodus, Exodus, such as you can't wear mixed clothing. In other words, if you have a cotton poly blend, you're a sinner. <laughs> Read that label. <laughs> you might be in sin. <laughs> yeah, he, I think he is. <laughs> okay, so, so there's a little, I mean, we need to exercise ourselves. The, the New Testament authors quoted the Septuagint uh, and quoted the Old Testament. But we need to exercise ourselves in some discernment to see what's a, uh, a valid principle that's taught all the way through the Bible and what is a stipulation that only applies to the covenant that the Jews had under the Old Testament. And it's not, the, it's not that hard to do. Some people don't want to do the hard work, but it's not impossible. Okay, so that's a good question as well. But the things that, that they were, the, the biggies, here's the biggies, uh, b- beloved, here's the biggies. Those three things, Sabbath keeping, food laws, circumcision. Because those were the things that kept the Jews separated 
from all the other nations. It kept them from being assimilated. Why were those three things canceled, circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath keeping? Why are they canceled in the New Testament? Because God doesn't want the church separated in the sense of not going throughout all the world because we're the salt and the light. The church isn't designed to be a cloistered, separatist thing that has no interaction with anybody else in the world because we're supposed to go out there with the gospel. Now, the Jews need, why, so why do the Jews need to be separated? But we don't. I mean, we do in a certain sense. We need to be separated from sin and idolatry and so on, which we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But, but, why were the Jews separated? Because they needed to preserve the lineage of Messiah so that the promise given to Eve, the promise given to Abraham, the promise given to David, that there would be a Jewish Messiah that would come to be the Savior of the world would be preserved because God's promise went to the Jews and to Abraham. And they're still preserved separate for what Paul talks about in Romans 11. It'll happen in the end. But why is the church not under Sabbath-keeping, food laws, circumcision? Why not? Because the church being separate and just staying in Jerusalem isolated from the rest of the world, would be counter the gospel. God wanted this to go out to the entire world. And if we start creating those laws again, Sabbath-keeping, circumcision, food laws, we're fighting the gospel. And that's why Paul anathematized anybody that did that in the book of Galatians. Because it's an attack against the gospel itself. All right. Okay. Uh, servants of righteousness. They look like that, but they really aren't. Barnett agrees. Barnett agrees with my reconstruction of this. Not that he knows what I said. He says this, but righteousness is most likely expressive of the law of Moses, or at least an attempt to predicate righteousness in Torah observance for two reasons, says Barnett. One, those who purport to be ministers of righteousness were Hebrews, Israelites, descendants of Abraham, verse 22. And two, those peddlers who needed letters of commendation to legitimate their coming to Corinth were ministers of a now overtaken old covenant, which was written on stones, 3.3, 3.14, and so on. Righteousness associated with such men appears to have been Mosaic and Torah-based. Since they proclaimed another Jesus, a different gospel, it seems like likely that they advocated a different righteousness, a righteousness arising out of the Mosaic law rather than from Messiah Jesus' reconciliatory death. So that's his reading, and I think it's a very reasonable one. So in... An ironic move, disguising themselves as servants of righteousness, they actually kept people away from God's righteousness, and that's a very bad thing. Now we quote Lenski. The fact that ministers of righteousness who bring justification by faith and all that this includes are ministers of God is self-evident. But this expression flashes into our minds all the blessedness of this ministry. This reacts on Satan's ministers for their work in serving Satan is to keep God's saving righteousness from men or to 
filch it from them if they already have obtained it by the help of God's ministers. The devilishness of this work is thus brought out, and the devilishness of the method employed in this work for these ministers of Satan pretend to bestow what God's ministers do bestow, and yea, pretend while they really bestow not righteousness, but damnation. The law will get you damnation, but it will not get you righteousness. Because Paul says, cursed is everybody who are under the works of the law. And what's his proof? The scripture says, cursed is everyone who does not abide in all of the things written in the law. Paul's assumption is that nobody fits that qualification except for Jesus Christ himself. All right? Nobody fits it. So therefore, if you try to do it, you put yourself under a curse. Norma? Jeremiah 5.31, Brian, Matthew 7.15 and 16, Jeremy, Ephesians 6.12, and Ben, Jude 1 and verse 4. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so, but what will you do at the end of it? (laughs) Okay, that's pretty interesting. The prophets prophesy falsely, and everybody loves it. Tell me what we want to hear. Don't tell us that we're sinners that need the gospel. <laughs> or in, in the case of Jeremiah, don't tell us that God's going to judge our sin. They didn't want to hear that. Matthew seven fifteen and 16. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Okay, so they come dressed as sheep, but they really aren't. They're really wolves. Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 6. Now, it's important to read all of Ephesians 6 to understand what Paul's talking about. See, some people say that we're struggling against these forces of darkness, and they mean that we need to directly interact with as many demons as possible. You know, rebuke demons, talk to demons, cast out demons, bind Satan, and so on. But as a matter of fact, Satan's plot through these forces of darkness is actually very focused. His plot is to stop the gospel from being preached. And if you read about the armor of God right after that verse, you'll read about the gospel. Okay? Everything that has to do with the gospel, the righteousness, the truth, the gospel of peace, okay? The battle is about the gospel. It isn't about all this other stuff. It's about the gospel. So our battle, if we are, we are indeed wrestling against those forces of darkness. And the battle is to stay on track with the gospel and not get derailed. That's the battle. And that will always be the battle. Okay, Jude 1 and verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, they creep in, the false teachers. So obviously, I have this in my notes, this is my comment. Obviously, they were not preaching the cross. If they were preaching the cross, they wouldn't be servants of Satan. 
they weren't preaching the cross. They had some other message. Now let's go to verse 16. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish so that I may boast a little. Okay. <laughs> well, we got a lot of sarcasm and irony going on here. Okay. Um, they think Paul's foolish because he doesn't have the Sophia that they're talking about in 1 Corinthians 1, wisdom. The word foolish, afrona, afrona, and it means to not employ one's understanding. Okay? And, or you might say, not using your mind. Afrona, the alpha privative. Not using your understanding. You're one who has lost the correct measure of himself. And so Paul's using irony because the last thing he wants to do is boast about himself. The last thing he wants to do is tell about his exploits, tell about his heritage, tell about his visions, tell about his courage and all the things that were actually true. That's the last thing he wants to do. But because the Corinthians will listen to people who do do this, and they refuse to listen to Paul, he's going to go into his full speech and tell about all his credentials that were even greater than the false apostles. But when he gets done with the entire speech, he goes back to the matter of weakness. And he says, I will rather boast in my weakness, because my grace is sufficient, God said. So here is the um, setting a stage for what's called the fool speech. Paul is not actually so foolish as to use boasting to justify his own status. The situation has forced him to. The others have duped the Corinthians by their own boasting. We're going back to the theme of 2 Corinthians 11.1, 1, and where he talks about bearing with him as he does what he feels like he has to do to defend the gospel. Now, I had a quote here. Okay, and you know what? I've got too many papers. <laughs> Reminds me when we had Dave Funk for a speaker here in 86. He had a big folder, remember that? He had a great big folder about this thick. And he says, I got this somewhere. <laughs> and he'd go dig it into it. Oh, okay. Ah. All right, here it is, Garland on, on this section here. The Corinthians have put up with the foolish boasting of his rivals without demurring. They can probably endure a little boasting from their own apostle. Many have boasted the way the world does, according to the flesh, that is, their boasting accords with the world's corrupt standards. If that is what it takes to get the Corinthians to listen, then that is what Paul will do. He joins the game reluctantly, however, because he's been driven to it. Wanting to be better than others in terms of status is foolish. Boy, it really is. That really, really is. That gets driven home in so many places. Luke is just filled with material about that. The desire for status is bad. It's like Haman in, in the book of Esther. Okay? We don't need status. Um, wanting to show oneself better than others is even more foolish, says Garland. The Corinthians have no trouble with those who glory in themselves because that is exactly what they expect them to do. 
By contrast, they've been put off by Paul's abject humility. They will not put up with him when he is wise and speaks according to the Lord. Then Paul jives, perhaps they will put up with him when he acts the fool and boasts in the same manner as his rivals. Okay, you won't listen to that, then listen to this. <laughs> and then when he gets done being a fool, he goes back and boasts in his weaknesses. <laughs> wow, that's, that's, that's gospel-centric. Verse 17, what I'm saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. As kata uh, in the Greek, that has, it can be used a number of different ways. Um, Ralph Martin says it means on the Lord's authority here. Uh, Lenski will not follow the norm and principle of Jesus. In other words, the Lord would not have boasting. So Paul has to do what's out of character of him in order to counter the claims of the super-apostles. And this is not what the Lord would want. But, in, in, but as in foolishness, in this confidence, hypostasis is the word confidence there, um, from which in theology we get the hypostatic union. It's used in Hebrews a couple of times in a very interesting way. That word hypostasis is used in um, Hebrews 11.1. 1, faith is being the substance of things not seen. Hypostasis. Hypostasis. So confidence. So, and it literally means substructure, that which stands under. But that's the word there. Joanne, could you look up Philippians 3, 3 through 6? For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Yeah, so that, that uh, pedigree, Paul, if he had to have a battle over status based on things Jewish, Paul could put confidence in that, but he'd be calling that confidence in the flesh. Later in that passage, he says, I count it all but rubbish that I might know Christ. Be found in him, having a righteousness not of my own, but law, but the righteousness that comes from Christ. So, let me say something, trying to put this all into a bigger picture. Imagine yourself being in the first century, being Jewish, and having a history, a lineage that goes all the way back to Abraham. Okay? And having been Jewish, and if you've been faithful to your Judaism, you'd suffered for it. You and your fathers and your father's fathers and your father's fathers had suffered for it. They'd been persecuted by every different kind of people in the world. They'd been killed. They've been crucified, literally. They've been hated. And the one thing that they had was themselves and the law. 
They had special status with God. They had the synagogues. They had identity. This was everything to them. It was absolutely everything. And they'd paid a price for it. And somebody like Paul comes along and calls it rubbish. Did he not? Well, he called it worse than that, but we don't say it in English, all right? Now, can you see why this was such an inflammatory issue? That the gospel comes to us and says that you righteousness that you had through all of those means is, is worthless? And that you have to die to this? And that you have to give up any status that you thought you had and that you paid a price for in order to gain Christ. And Paul was converted, and he, he gave it up. That was, that was the issue. And so now imagine some super apostles come along and say, no, you don't need to give that up. You need to get it back. Very difficult. That's why the gospel is so powerful. Because it has to shake us loose from whatever else we believed in. Whatever else, whether it was money, whether it was our religion, whether it was our friends, whether it's our status in the world, whatever we thought we had going for us, when the call goes out to repent and believe the gospel, the call is going out to give up anything and everything that we ever thought about trusting in and trust only in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Yes. Gretchen. Well, that seems real, what you're just describing of how if you've always been taught and from centuries back how to think and live a certain way. And how did Paul give this up? Well, I can say in a kind of blasé way, well, it was easy because he saw Jesus. <laughs> but my, I, And I know that wasn't easy for him. It was God's grace. But I'll kind of say the obvious, ask the obvious question, how can any of the rest of us give up that false? The same way we saw Jesus through the eyes of faith. The same way Paul did. We heard the Lord call our name. This one's mine. This one's mine. That's what the Lord says. He might just grab you. He just might grab you by the nap of the neck and apprehend you. I saw Jesus. Now, I didn't have a vision of Jesus, but I knew he was real the moment I was converted. Uh, yes. And I think also after he accepted, after he saw Christ and accepted him, Paul was taken aside for a period of time and taught by the Lord. Yes, that's true. And that's probably when he got all these things very clear before he went out. Yeah, the Lord himself appeared to Paul. That's true. And that's, that's why he was a legitimate apostle. Paul was chosen by God, by God and saw the risen Lord and was a legitimate apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, we'll start with verse 18 next week. And appreciate you all sharing with me in the gospel today, and uh, we'll see you upstairs at 1030.